following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. We'll grab your Bibles and go to the New Testament book of 2 Peter chapter 3 as we look tonight at a slow but sure unveiling. There are only two verses here, but oh, what powerful verse, verses they contain. What great truths we'll find as we go through these. In the 1990s, those who study such things predicted that by the year 2000, due to the technological advances, we would have our workloads lightened. Technology would uh, usher in this new age of relaxation and leisure. Most Americans would only work three days a week. In reality, however, the technological inventions that were supposed to make our lives easier, I think in a lot of ways, have made our lives even harder. (laughs) They've had the opposite effect. Uh, I think using technology can stress us out more than it can help us a lot of times. For example, when my computer stops working and locks up, I spastically bang the keyboard to try to get it to start again. Or I tap the mouse, or I pound away at the touch screen if it's a touch computer. I haven't learned that none of those methods work. And then there's that issue of social media. You know, social media has some wonderful uh, aspects to it. But then there's that pressure. You know, I got to put a a post about somebody's birthday or about somebody's celebration or about somebody's this or that. And it's like, it's pressure, it's stress. So if you're ever increasingly weary of all the pressure that comes from the, the time that you spend with technology and really anything else, I have some good news for you tonight. Because there's some practical applications in our text about the way we should spend our time. <clears throat> Let's look at 2 Peter 2, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I'm glad you've been with us in our study of Second Peter. It's been a, a, I think, a fascinating study of end times and prophetic events, and how really Peter has helped us to see how should we be spending our time in preparation for whenever Jesus comes back to take us home. So after addressing the ridicule Christians face concerning the Lord and the fact that he hasn't returned yet in verses 1 through 7 of this third chapter, Peter goes on to speak about the reason for the restraint that the Lord is showing and understanding based upon the fact that the Lord completely transcends all time and space. Peter is saying all of us will get into trouble, not just theological trouble or doctrinal trouble, but real life trouble if we don't take the time to think through the issues that we're facing each day to make sure that our minds are right as we approach God's Word. So what we think matters, our our minds matter because we're saved and we grow and we're sanctified uh, through our heart but also through our, our head. So Peter outlines a great contrast here between two crowds of people who were in trouble because they hadn't noticed a couple of things. First of all, Peter speaks of those, when he says they in verse 5, who ridicule the return of Christ. You remember we looked at that last time we were together, but look back at verse 5. For when they maintain this, 
It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So that they, spoken of in verse 5, are those who just want to be left alone to live out their lives. They don't want to hear about a Lord or about a God or about a Savior or about Jesus coming back. They just want to be undisturbed in their sinful ways. They don't want to be corrected or told anything they're doing is wrong. But they haven't noticed the plain facts of really history. It's ignorant to say that everything continued uninterrupted from the moment of creation. It was ignorant to think that God wouldn't judge them for their sins when he's already judged the world in the past for its sins. So they desperately needed to learn that God is a God of judgment and a God of accountability. But secondly, notice Peter describes genuine Christians when he says beloved in verse 8 who look for his return. But these were in danger of missing the very reason Jesus had not come back yet. And they were also in danger of neglecting what they should be doing in the meantime. Between the time Jesus ascended and the time he returns. And that's the context for understanding the message of verses 8 and 9 of 2 Peter 3. Now... You fall in one of two of these categories. Either someone who is not a believer and is rejecting Christ and ridiculing people who think he's coming back. Or those who are believers. And and maybe sometimes we need to be careful that we don't neglect that we're about doing Jesus' business until he returns. The author offers us a biblical method to deal with hard questions. Look at the first part of verse 8 again. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. You don't have to live the Christian life very long before you're forced to come to terms with doubt. Doubts that can confuse your mind and cause you to question what's going on. It's important to remember that these situations and these questions are not sinful. They are an unavoidable part of living in a fallen world. And even more importantly, they can be opportunities for growth and development as God helps our faith and our commitment to grow strong if we respond properly to what's happening. So we've got to learn how to handle situations of our lives properly. We can't just run and ignore them. We can't just pretend that questions don't exist or trouble doesn't come. No, the Bible outlines a a method of approaching these issues from the right perspective. Now notice what Peter is saying. It's very simple, but it's very critical. When you're agitated and confused or you're, or you're troubled or in a trial, you're deeply disturbed by heart, by, in your heart, make sure you don't forget the basic. Look, at, look back there. Do not overlook this one fact. You got to stay in the Word of God. You got to stay in what the Bible teaches us. Well, we might think, well, we're never going to forget some of the fundamental truths that Christians believe, like uh, God is on the throne and God is in charge and with the character of God, the eternal nature of God. And I know we wouldn't forget that right now. But our thinking can change when we're the ones who are going through the trouble. When we're facing a trying circumstance, truth is much harder to hold on to when your life is under strain and stress. Ever notice how you forget all of the healthy parts of your body when you have a toothache? 
I had one not long ago, a few weeks ago, and uh, I, I, I forgot that I was healthy overall. You know, I had this toothache, and that's all I thought about. That was like the concentration of my pain. A little boy was taken to the dentist, and it was discovered that he had a cavity that had to be filled. The dentist asked, now, young man, what kind of feeling would you like for your tooth? The youngster replied, chocolate, please. <laughs> I don't think he was talking about that kind of feeling, was it? Was it? You have a toothache. But you forget, you know, the rest of your body's okay because you're concentrated on that pain. You face a trouble or trial in life and you forget how well the rest of your life can be going. You see, our real problem is we almost always are looking at life temporarily while God is always looking at it eternally. If we're going to think properly about our circumstances and about God and about ourselves and about the world around us, we're going to have to, you know, take a step back, take a breath, take a pause, be quiet ourselves, and, and get God's eternal perspective on things as best we can. Let me give you an example, you know, straight out of Scripture. You don't have to turn there. But in Joshua 9, we read um, about the Gibeonites who said to Joshua, we're in trouble. We're about to be wiped out by the five Amorite kings who are besieging our city. Therefore, keeping his end of the treaty he's made with them, Joshua and his troops rescued the Gibeonites. And as the Amorites fled in retreat, the Israelites were poised to finish them off, but the sun started setting, kind of like it's doing right now outside these windows. The time was running out, and the job was still left unfinished. So, jo jo so Joshua commanded the sun to stand still. And Scripture records the sun did indeed stand still until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Joshua 10, 13. What does this have to do with us practically? Well, understand this. Although in fighting the Amorites, Joshua was doing something that would not be easy for him to do because he was obedient to the Lord and he was following what the Lord had called him to do, he was able to get the job done. So too, there are things the Lord might have us to do this week that are not easy. About which we find ourselves saying, you know, I don't want to call her. <laughs> I don't want to talk to my neighbor. I don't want to do this or, or go there. So instead, you know, we go our own way. We, we follow our own agenda. And what will happen? We run out of time. It gets dark. And we do things mistakenly thinking we have the better plan. Rather than following what God has directed us to do. On the other hand, if like Joshua, we're obedient to the Lord. We find that we have time to accomplish what God gave us to do. Even if it takes a supernatural act. This is the greatest piece of time management advice that is out there. Do what the Lord is telling you to do and do it now. Don't wait till later. Don't say sometime. Don't say I'll do that tomorrow. Melly and I were talking recently about um, Scarlett O'Hare. Remember her and Gone with the Wind? Uh, we were reading about how so many times in that movie she used some kind of phrase about, you know, I'll think about that tomorrow. <laughs> After all, tomorrow is another day. And she never got done what she needed to do. Do what he's showing you to do, and then he will give you plenty of energy, plenty of daylight, plenty of whatever you need to get the job done if that's what he's called you to do. When we give our day to the Lord, something happens. When we wake up and we say, Lord, this is not my day, 
I'm not going to be selfish in this day. I'm going to give it to you. Then something's going to happen to honor the Lord. When we're obedient and we walk with him, our our day seems to just expand with opportunities to serve him. If you say things like, even if I don't personally want to do this, even if I think I'm too busy, Lord, if you call me to do it, I'm going to trust you to help me be productive. And I'm going to give you the glory. I read a very interesting story. It's a true story. A man claims God told him to start digging a hole some 18 years ago, and he literally hasn't stopped digging since that day. Santiago Sanchez, 69, says he regards it as the Lord's work, and he he devotes every waking hour to the project. This man heads to the tunnel in the city of Berlin in the western El Salvador department of Usulatan at around 3 a.m. every day. At every time he emerges, he's carrying about 90 pounds of rock, stones, and debris following what God told him to do. It's no easy task, and the journalist who went into the tunnel to have a look confessed by the time he got halfway, he was struggling to breathe and he had to leave immediately. Despite his conviction that he's following God's orders, he has many critics and many more who laugh at what he's doing. His wife, named Isabel Ventura, said, There are people who say that he's crazy, but he answers them, No one knows what God is going to demand from you. Is Santiago Sanchez doing God's will by digging a hole in the middle of a jungle? He thinks he is. I can't say that he's not. Here's the really interesting thing about God's will. It can be a part of even the most mundane and routine activities of our lives. The Bible says this in Colossians 3, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Jesus you are serving. When I read that, I think it means, unless something's immoral or unbiblical or unlawful, any task can be a divine calling if it's done with the right motivation to honor God with your work and with your task. See, the real question to me is, is Mr. Sanchez doing the will of God? The question is, are we doing the will of God? No matter what you do, you can choose to do it for the Lord. Or you can simply choose to do it for the paycheck. Every person in every walk of life and every career can serve to choose God or just choose to serve money. It doesn't take a special revelation from God to discover his will for your life. It just takes a heart to please him in all circumstances. We see a prophetic application in the second part of verse 8. The most difficult part of any situation in your life is learning to see things from God's perspective rather than your own. Look at the uh, last part of verse uh, 8 of 2 Peter 3. And a thousand years as one day. To us, it's such a long time. But to God, a thousand years is like a day. And 2,000 years is like uh, Jesus left two days ago. That's like ordering, ordering your new refrigerator, expecting it to be delivered on Wednesday, but it gets delivered on Friday. Not a big difference. The hardest part of training seeing eye dogs is training them to see from the perspective of the person they're leading rather than their own. A dog on its own can walk under a table. 
He has no uh, means or, or no need to go around the table. He can walk right under it. But if the dog is leading a six foot tall man, he has to remember that man can't go under the table. The dog has to learn to see obstacles from the man's perspective. So as much as you and I can, we've got to look at life from God's perspective and keep the big picture in mind. It will help shape our thinking and it will build our faith and it will strengthen our patience. Jesus said in Revelation twenty two twenty, Surely I come quickly. To which the scoffers and the cynics reply quickly. It's been 2,000 years. But you see what Peter's saying? In, in the Lord's economy, 1,000 years is like a day. And 2,000 years is like two days. So it's like he's only been gone two days. 2,000 years ago, Israel was destroyed as a nation when, under General Titus, the Romans decimated the city of Jerusalem, burned the temple, and scattered the people. But after two days or 2,000 years, a miracle took place in 1948, and Israel became a nation again. The question is, then why are we still here? Well, I think it's like we're in overtime. Okay, we're in extra innings, <laughs> if I could just use a few sports analogies there. If you've questioned what you see going on in the world today, you're not the first to do so. Listen as the psalmist questions, uh, Psalm 73. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. You have questions about why is there evil in the world? And why does the wicked seem to be getting away with so much and not being brought to justice? Well, don't miss the point of the psalmist's words. As he studies the prosperity and the profit of the wicked who mock God. While he tries to remain faithful and suffers for it. You can look at the moment and you can be confused. And you can be perplexed. Or you can get your mind on God's perspective. The long road. The big picture. And you can look at the prosperity of the wicked right now. Or you can look at the judgment of the wicked in the time to come. When words like Psalm 73 take place. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. For as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let me give you another example from the Old Testament. Job 38. He asked, who has put wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of the heavens? When the dust hardens into a mass and the clods stick together. So here's the point I'm trying to make from all those verses I put on the screen. It has a great deal to do with this eighth verse of 2 Peter 3. The confused psalmist still had to face the prosperity of the evil people while he in his godliness suffered pain and was, in, was having silence he felt from God. Job still had to sit there having lost his family, all his wealth, even his health. At the time of the writing of those verses we read, the situations were not improved, not one bit. But here's the difference. Their attitudes changed. Their framework for approaching those situations radically improved. What happened? What did they come to see that they didn't remember in the first place? Well, just one thing. 
one fact that Peter said we must hold on to, and that is God is everlasting. God is eternal. God is forever. You can't figure him out with your limited mind. You can't measure him with a measuring stick. Why has God not sent Christ to return to earth yet? Because God does not measure time the way we do. You see, there are two differences between the time of God and the time of man, okay? One is the actual span of time. To God, a thousand years is only like a day because he's eternal. He's out of time and space. But it's not just from a perspective view. He's already in the future. He's in all of that time. To man, time is relative, but that, but that is not true for God. You see, we measure time by days and, and hours and minutes and years. But to God, a thousand years is like a day. Therefore, to ask Jesus why he has not returned after 2,000 years is really kind of ridiculous to him because of the way he controls time. But we don't need to be concerned discouraged by this we can actually be encouraged because see for us there's this perception of time we know this to be true based on on personal experience right if you're required to attend a meeting and the speaker is boring time can just drag on and on and on now hopefully you never feel that way while you're listening to me okay (laughs) but time flies when you're having fun right also think about the perception of time from the viewpoint of a child Alan Keith was telling me today that he and Susan went to keep their grandson, Lachlan, for his parents to take a trip out of town. I think he's 20 months old. And whenever Lachlan started missing his parents, Alan and Susan would just say, they'll be back later. Well, he'd be okay with that. He didn't continue asking questions because he knew his parents were returning. He didn't know what later meant. Was that an hour? Was that a day? That was not a perception to him. We don't know the exact time Jesus Christ is returning. But we can have confidence and we can have faith that he is coming back. And that should be enough. However long that is. Picture one day on the earth. Think about all the suffering and pain that human beings experience just on this day. Think about all the accidents that took place, all the disease. We look Sunday morning at that amazing statistic about how many people die in a given day. All the cursing and blasphemy that God, that God has to endure. Think about all the people who head to hell and went there today. You see, God feels every ounce of that suffering and of that pain and he, and he still loves us. He suffers along with us. God is absolutely perfect, but yet he suffers with this intensity that we can never identify with. We can never possibly imagine. The feelings of just one day when we have a lot of stress or a lot of pain or a lot of suffering, that's unbearable sometimes. But think about a thousand years of that kind of suffering. Whereas we bear only the sufferings of our own personal experience or those we know about or those we love, God suffers the experiences of the entire world. And everybody in every country. Thus to God the experience of just one day of evil. is like a thousand years to him. The point is this. You know it's a warning. You know God will not bear with evil forever. He'll not suffer the rejection and rebellion of mankind too long. We'll speak the word of God. And, and one day Jesus is coming back. And mockers should not forget that he is coming. 
When Christians fail to remember the second coming, they lose their passion for the lost. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why has Christ not returned to earth? Because God loves us. God loves the world. He doesn't want any person to perish, not a single person. God is not slack in fulfilling his promise, nor is he powerless to return and judge the earth. He has not returned for one reason. He wants more people to be saved. Note three significant points. God is, is long-suffering. The word means patient. It means bear, bearing with us. It means persevering. Very simply, God is slow to give in and to judge and to condemn because of his great patience. It's amazing how we can distort the truth without even trying. Usually when people complain about God, the reason goes something like this. How can uh, you say God is loving and caring and good? Look at the way this world is. Look at the hatred and the cruelty. Look at the suffering and the pain. Why doesn't he come and do something? Either he cares, but he can't do anything about what's going on, or he can do something, but he doesn't care. Let me give you another perspective. Many never think that Jesus waits because he cares so deeply about people similar to the ones who spit in his face. He doesn't want anybody to perish, according to Scripture. Peter says all these people have a chance to repent. There's no other way for people to be saved. Sometimes people try everything else before they come to God. Sometimes that process can take years. But then, whenever they do come, even after years of searching in other places and in other things, God receives them. Verse 9 also gives us our reason for living. If it's true that God is waiting for them, then he must also be waiting for us. These people can't just be written off. That ninth verse that we read, if it means anything, it means that God still loves sinners. And so should we. Later on in verse 15, Peter will say, and we'll look at this next time, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Let's have the kind of heart that God has for lost people. We don't want anybody to perish. We don't want anybody to go to such a horrible place as hell. Now is the accepted time. God wants no one to perish. Perish is a terrible thing. It means to, to, to go and be apart from God forever and for all eternity. But God, John three sixteen, so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5, 8, God commends his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love when he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. For by grace you were saved. Repentance involves two turns. It, it, it involves a turn away from sin and a turn to God through Jesus Christ. Repentance is more than sorrow. Somebody can feel sorry for their actions, but not be involved in repentance. A person who is repentant simply changes their will, their acts. A person may repent when they sense an overwhelming love of God that he has for them. And people can repent today. That's our message. That's our hope. 
When pop culture icon Lady Gaga decided to keep a diary, she chose to do so in a very public chronicle of her life and career. Weekly posts on YouTube called Gaga Vision, each boasting more than a million views, provide video peeks into her private backstage and onstage exploits. Gaga Vision number 41 posted to YouTube documented her encounter with an evangelical protester. Upon arrival at her concert venue, Gaga had her driver pull up beside a group of protesters so she could introduce herself to them. She was quite civil and friendly, but was sadly greeted in return with disrespect and disparaging comments. One protester reached into her window and handed her a card which read, Get out of hell free. It was based on that Monopoly card, you know, get out of jail free. But it said, get out of hell free. The protester then condescendingly snarled at her. That's going to happen one day, darling. Ostensibly because of what he then labeled as her pervert ways and homo stuff. Gaga countered by saying, don't you think it's hurtful? And before she could get the rest of her sentence out, he interrupted her by saying, it's a black book with gold edges and a little ribbon. Recounting her story in the video journal, Gaga sighed, it just makes me sad that my fans had to see that. You know, it's sad, by the way, a card like that with such a true message can be used in such a rude way. A message created to express God's love and grace can be misused by a judgmental and disrespectful protester. All too often, we can misuse the way we deliver the message of God's grace and mercy. And I got to admit, I echo the sentiment of, of her. I'm just sad her fans had to see that. How do we respond to a world that views the good news so many times in a bad way? We've got to not allow ourselves to be put on the defensive. I believe the best way to combat this cultural phenomenon is to respond to each negative accusation of intolerance by reframing the question. For instance, when the world criticizes Christianity for endorsing only one way to heaven, one good response would be, yes, but aren't you glad there is at least one way? Shouldn't we all be grateful that God has made it possible for us to get there? Who are we to the man that one way is not good enough? If there were a burning building, would you refuse to to flee because there was only one way out? Furthermore, isn't it a wonderful way God has chosen? He has not left salvation dependent upon our weak and imperfect efforts. Rather, he has secured salvation for us through the perfect effort of his son, Jesus Christ. The perfect life of God himself was given in exchange for our imperfect lives so that we might receive salvation as a gift. And finally, the good news gets even better. He's extended this offer to everyone. Black, white, male, female, homosexual, heterosexual, rich, poor, Gentile, Jew, Muslim, all alike. Does that sound like a narrow-minded or intolerant God? No, I said it earlier, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son for anyone who believes in him. That is such good news. In fact, it would be fair to ask, not to be so apologetic, but shouldn't you, shouldn't all of us be glad there is a way to get to God? Let's ask God to open up doors for us to share the good news of his salvation and do so in a pleasant and attractive way. 
way. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfarechurch.org. Blessings.